Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program update on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, our DLBCL, and today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer, between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is um, because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the program today. So we have over 327 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, Croatia, Egypt, India, Iraq, Israel, Laos, South Africa, Spain, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And today's program has been supported by an educational grant from Morphosis US, Inc., and I really want to thank them for the support of this program. Um, now, before we start with our speakers, I do want to actually ask you a few questions just to see um, a little bit of what you understand about the, um, about um, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma before the program starts. So I'm going to start with the first question. Those of you who are live streaming will be able to address these questions. They're yes, no questions. So the first question is, I understand the current standard of care for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And it's either yes or no. And then the second question is, I know the treatment options for resistant disease in the context of COVID-19. Again, yes or no. Third question just one more after this. I know the emerging novel treatment approaches, yes or no. Last question is, I know the tips to manage treatment side effects, yes or no. I really want to thank you for participating in responding to these questions. It helps us to know in planning future programs what you know coming into the program. It's really very helpful to us, so thank you so much. And I want to introduce our first speaker for today. And our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of clinical medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. Dr. Strauss will be addressing an overview of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, staging and grading and current standard of care, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Good afternoon. Thank you, Carolyn. 
Diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, is the most common non-Hodgkin lymphoma, comprising about 25% of cases. It is not a single entity, which we've learned over the last several years. There are several different entities involving different sites where the treatment details differ in some way. It also includes uh, slowly growing lymphomas that under, uh, undergo a new rapid growth due to mutations where they look like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and are treated in a similar way. Also related are very fast-growing lymphomas, uh, what we call high-grade B-cell lymphomas, which used to be and are sometimes still called DLBCL. Um, so we, uh, these are diseases that even during the COVID uh, period, we have been treating when they're diagnosed because they are moderately fast or fast-growing. And I will say that sometimes we have to deal with complications if patients get COVID, but for the most part, we have been treating them uh, successfully in the most in the majority of patients despite COVID, and I will say at the outset that the treatment is with curative intent. That is, try to get rid of it. So there are different types of uh, lymphocytes, and there are different types of B lymphocytes, and uh, the pathologist can divide them into. Uh, types that are related to normal lymphocytes in the so-called germinal centers of normal lymph nodes and those that are more activated B-cell types. So we use the uh, modification of the Ann Arbor staging system that was devised for Hodgkin lymphoma 70 years ago with some, or excuse me, 50 years ago with some uh, uh, modifications. Uh, so this, uh, this staging system divides the body in half by the diaphragm, which divides the chest cavity from the abdominal ca cavity. So we talk of disease above the upper part of the body, above the diaphragm, and lower part of the body below the diaphragm. This uh, staging system is based on lymph nodes. Uh, spleen is considered to be a lymph node. So localized disease is disease that's in a single lymph node or in the case of DLBCL, in a non-lymph node site, such as the stomach or the thyroid or the bone. Stage two is disease in lymph nodes and or spleen above and below the diaphragm, upper body and lower body stage, or, excuse me, no. Stage two is disease in upper body or lower body, but not both, including, say, groin nodes and spleen, in the lower body and say neck and under the arms in upper body. Stage three is disease in lymph nodes and or spleen above and below the diaphragm. And stage four is disease in lymph nodes plus a non-lymph node site. So if it's localized to a non-lymph node site, such as the stomach, we call it stage 1E. If it's in lymph nodes as well, it's stage four. We do see symptoms that can be related to lymphoma, which are much more common in Hodgkin lymphoma, so-called B symptoms, fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. They are much less common in uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So um, 
the standard of care treatment is really a combination of antibody treatment and chemotherapy, what we call chemo <coughs> chemoimmunotherapy. The antibody uh, that we use is called rituximab, which is a genetically engineered antibody, part mouse and part human, that attaches to a receptor on the surface of the Hodgkin lymphoma uh, of the uh, B cell, diffuse uh, large B cell lymphoma cells, and causes body's immune uh, defenses and, uh, to destroy them and reprograms them to die faster than normal. And we've known for 20 years that if we combine that with a chemotherapy that we've been using for 40 years we get a better result than we do with either uh, antibody treatment or chemotherapy alone. The uh, standard chemotherapy that we use is called CHOP, which stands for three chemotherapy drugs that are given by vein, cyclophosphamide, hydroxyldonorubicin or doxorubicin or adriamycin, and oncovin or vincristin, along with prednisone that's given orally for five days. Usually this is given every three weeks. So for localized disease, stage 1 or stage 1E, we'll use a few cycles of uh, our CHOP, rituximab CHOP, uh, three to four cycles and involved field radiation therapy to the local site. That's one approach. Another approach is to use a little bit more chemotherapy, four to six cycles of our CHOP, and not give radiation therapy. And the thing that decides it is the PET scan, which has been very helpful in telling us whether people are going to be in a sustained remission. If the PET scan is negative, there's 10% or less uh, risk of relapse. Uh, for more advanced stage, for stage uh, for disease that's beyond uh, a localized site, stage two through four, we use six cycles of RCHOP as the standard of care. And again, we assess response by the uh, PET scan at the end of treatment. We, we call somebody who's PET negative where there's no uptake of radioisotope, we call that a complete response. The high-grade B-cell lymphomas, <coughs> or what used to be called high-grade uh, DLBCL, are treated with a variation of this which uses some of the drugs by continuous infusion through a vein over a four-day period. And this is called dose-adjusted EPOC, and it is also combined with rituximant. So dose-adjusted EPOC-R, the drugs are uh, etoposide, doxorubicin, and vincristin that are given by 24-hour, are given by 96-hour infusion continu <coughs> continuously <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me, and cyclophosphamide, which is given at the end of treatment. Side effects, when we, we start patients on treatment, we go through things in great detail. I usually go through the kind of overview of the treatment. We have a pharmacist who goes through all the drugs and their side effects. We give people written information about them. We tell them about drugs that we have that can uh, sort of lessen some of the side effects. And uh, the nurse uh, who works with me gives them a calendar to tell them when they're, be, when they're going to be treated. So this is the establishment of close contact with our treating team 
and we review all the side effects and problems at each visit every three weeks for their treatment, and we urge them to call us uh, and contact us if there are any problems. In particular, we're concerned about fevers, which could be related to a low white blood cell count. We'll want to know about that so that we can deal with it. And then we have ancillary, ancillary support, uh, particularly uh, quality of life issues, emotional problems. We have an excellent psychiatry service, social work service, and we have integrative medicine for supportive and, um, and emotional care. So I don't know if I'm eight minutes, but I think that wraps up my very quick overview. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Strauss. That was outstanding and really covered a lot um, in a very brief amount of time, but it, uh, it's very helpful to everybody. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is the John P. Leonard M MD Gortzman Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma, Assistant Professor of Medicine while Cornell Medical College, Cornell University. Uh, Dr. Rutherford will be addressing treatment options for resistant disease in the context of COVID-19 and emerging novel treatment approaches. It really is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and I want to thank you and Cancer Care for inviting me and uh, to Dr. Strauss, Dr. Diefenbach, and Dr. Diaz for participating also. I look forward to our discussion later in the talk. Um, so I, I actually... Um, I'm very excited to present this topic. Um, this has been a, um, a shift over the last few years in which we have many more treatment options for people with resistant diffuse RHB cell lymphoma, um, such that we're working to figure out the right order of them all. Um, and I, I find it to be very encouraging that when I have a patient who has um, suspected uh, of what we call relapsed diffuse RHB cell lymphoma, that I actually have multiple different um, options to offer and can really tailor it to that person's exact situation. Um, so when patients ha who have a history of diffuse RHB cell lymphoma are suspected of having relapsed or refractory disease, um, and refractory really refers to um, the initial treatment not working well, um, so uh, it would be important for us to repeat imaging, ideally a PET CT scan if possible or otherwise CT scan, and to biopsy the area that looks most active um, in a PET scan. Um, that will help us to um, determine exactly what is going on. So Dr. Strauss had mentioned that there can be slower-growing lymphomas that transform or, or change into faster-growing lymphomas, and it also can happen that the, that the um, slower growing lymphomas could still be present or recur later um, rather than the diffuse source B cell lymphoma recurring. So the point that I'm trying to make is that it is very important for us to do a second biopsy when we suspect that a patient has active disease to make sure we know exactly what type of lymphoma that we're treating. Um, so I do want to mention, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, that in the COVID-19 context, we're doing virtual visits. I think that will be addressed later as well. Um, but as much as possible, we're, we're doing, um, for example, in the past, I may have had a patient come on the second week of their, after their treatment to check in and see how they're doing. And rather than do that in person, I'm also often doing that type of visit um, with them at home, but via, via video just to minimize their time um, at home. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, minimize their time away from home. 
Um, so that being said, I want to echo what um, Dr. Strauss said as well, that um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is often a disease that requires relatively quick treatment um, when it relapses, so it's not really the type of disease that's, uh, in which treatment can be delayed. Um, and we're making every effort across um, the board, I'm sure, um, in, in all the states and all the countries where you are, making oh, your doctors are making every effort to protect your health and safety, particularly during this time. Um, so when um, re, de, re, uh, recurrent diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is confirmed, the most standard approach has been what is called platinum-based chemotherapy followed by autologous stem cell transplant in those patients with a complete response or no evidence of disease on imaging after that therapy. Um, while this is curable in some patients, there are some who do not get into that complete response with the second type of chemotherapy, or they do do that and do get to the stem cell transplant but have disease that comes back after the stem cell transplant. And as I've said before, we have multiple options for these patients that are in that situation or for those who um, don't have the option of stem cell transplant, for example, um, they may have other medical problems that make their doctors think it's too risky for them to go through that procedure. Um, now, a topic that could be its own discussion that I've just briefly mentioned is called CAR T-cell therapy or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. This involves taking blood from a patient and um, basically engineering um, the patient's T-cells in a way that enables that patient to better fight the lymphoma. And there's typically about a three-week week time period from, from when the blood cells would be collected and sent to a company. There are um, a number of commercial uh, products available, companies that have um, that manufacture these and then send them back to the home institution. And um, this is typically given in the inpatient setting. Um, not uh, There is one um, one of these drugs that can potentially be given in an outpatient setting, but most of the time it's given in the hospital and requires close monitoring um, and uh, is really thought to be kind of, I, I think of it really in the same sort of therapy type as a stem cell transplant, meaning that it's what we call a cellular therapy um, and requires uh, very close monitoring for, even for a number of months after the treatment is administered. Now, I want to shift gears and just touch on four different treatments. So I've mentioned that in the past, like say five years ago, we um, if someone had had a transplant, we didn't have a lot of great options other than more chemotherapy. Uh, but the thought really is that um, patients, if they've already received chemotherapy, they would likely um, do better with a novel type of therapy approach and um, what we call targeted therapies that are more tailored for the killing the lymphoma cells specifically as opposed to killing cells that divide, which is what um, chemotherapy does. Uh, and I know I'm taking uh, a bit longer than I had anticipated, so I'll just go through these quickly. Um, and these are, are drugs that you can talk to your doctor about if you're in this situation. But again, um, it's you know, just very good news that we have multiple options here. So the first one was approved by the FDA last year. It's called polituzumab vidotin. It is called a drug antibody conjugate in which this drug binds specifically to a protein on the lymphoma cell surface called CD79B and injects the toxin that helps to directly kill it. It is approved in combination with a chemotherapy called bendamustine and rituximab that was um, mentioned by Dr. Strauss. Um, I'll move on to the next drug, which is called tafacitimab, and it is approved just as of this year um, to be given in combination with an oral drug called lenalidomide. The prior drug I mentioned, polituzumab, is given through the vein. Tafacitimab, this new uh, drug that I'm mentioning, is also given through the vein. 
um, with a pill called lenalidomide. Um, this drug is a monoclonal antibody, so like rituximab in a way, but binds to a different protein on lymphoma cells called CD19. Um, the lenalidomide is an, is an oral drug that is well known to hematologists. It originally was used for myeloma. It's used for a number of other lymphoma subtypes. Um, and so we have a lot of experience with it, and it is a more direct uh, method of killing lymphoma cells. This was combination was particularly studied in patients who were not candidates for autologous stem cell transplant. Um, and uh, in general, it does require, at least for the first three months, weekly treatments through the vein, and then it changes to um, every other week treatments from there. Um, and then I'll touch on two different oral regimens. Selenexor is an oral medication that was also FDA approved just this year. It's called a selective inhibitor of nuclear export. It activates something called tumor suppressor proteins that can help um, to um, make it such that the body can better fight uh, a lymphoma as well. Um, and it is typically taken by mouth twice a week ongoing um, uh, as long as the patient is responding and tolerating it well. And then the final combination I'll mention, this is actually not FDA approved, um, but there is a lot of, uh, of good data. And I think, you know, I expect to this, uh, I think this is a very promising regimen um, for patients. Um, it includes the drug I already mentioned, oral called lenalidomide, as well as rituximab, which we've talked about before um, with Dr. Strauss plus another oral drug called ibrutinib. And this is particularly effective in a, the subtype that's called activated B-cell or non-germinal center, which also was mentioned by Dr. Strauss. And this is particularly prevalent in older patients. Um, so this is a primarily oral regimen. It does include once a month rituximab um, for uh, usually for six months, but it is an, an, a promising oral combination. So I just wanted to conclude by saying, in general, um, from a standpoint of the COVID-19 situation, um, if someone is at, a, is at a point where they're likely to get either an autologous stem cell transplant or CAR T cell, um, we would certainly not want to delay their treatment even with COVID going on. We'd be very cautious but would get them through their treatments and get on to that next cellular therapy as quickly as we can. Um, however, if a patient either is not a candidate for that type of therapy, or um, if they live far away, travel is difficult, if they're older, have other medical problems, I would lean towards wanting to use some of these oral approaches to minimize their time of having to come back and forth into our clinics um, during this, this pandemic. Um, but again, I want to reiterate that uh, I think all of us in the medical community are taking um, absolutely all precautions we can to keep our patients safe, um, and, and um, we will all get through this together. I, I look forward to talking um, with you all more at the end of the session um, for the question and answers. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Rutherford. Very reassuring to all of our participants and to hear of all of these new treatments and all that's being done and, and all that is being done by every center to stay with everybody throughout this whole period of time and giving you the very best care. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I know there'll be questions during the Q&A for you as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Catherine Diefenbach. Dr. Diefenbach is Associate Professor of Medicine Translational Director of Hematology, Director of Clinical Lymphoma, Promoter Cancer Center at NCI Designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Diefenbach will be addressing clinical trial updates in the context of COVID-19, how research contributes to treatment options, tips to manage side effects, including discussion of quality of life concerns with your healthcare team in the context of COVID-19. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Diefenbach. 
Thank you so much, Carolyn, for inviting me to speak today, and thank you so much, Cancer Care, for having this wonderful program for patients. So I just want to reiterate that clinical trials are still ongoing despite COVID-19 limitations. And I know many patients are worried about clinical trials in the context of COVID-19 because they worry that being in a clinical trial will increase their risk of exposure to COVID um, or that uh, trials may not be, on, be going on because of COVID. And I want to say that, you know, really clinical trials are how we have advanced the field and most centers are making trials extremely safe for patients even during this time. So um, let's uh, talk about first some potential limitations of trials. There are some therapies such as the uh, CAR T-cells, which Dr. Rutherford has discussed, or uh, some of the new and very exciting immune therapies such as a bispecific antibody, which, takes, uh, which has at least two arms and takes uh, one arm and attaches to a protein on the surface of a tumor cell and another arm which attaches to a T-cell basically brings the T-cell to the tumor cell and says, uh, T-cell, look, here's a, here's a bad lymphoma cell. Eat this and tell your friends. And basically is able to, by bringing the T-cells in much closer proximity to the tumor cell, generate a significantly increased immune response, which then translates into a uh, significant anti-tumor response. Some of these trials, which need to be in the hospital, are limited in COVID-19 only because as hospital beds fill up with COVID patients, the first priority for beds has to be for COVID patients. But luckily, many of these trials have been able to shift to being done in outpatient centers. Not only this, many sponsors of clinical trials are very sensitive to the limitations that COVID-19 puts uh, on the delivery of clinical care and have made what, what are really rather revolutionary uh, modifications, such as the ability to do informed consents through uh, telehealth rather than making the patient come in to do informed consent, to having patients who are on pill clinical trials do video visits and have their pills be mailed to them, or even uh, having some of the follow-up visits that don't require uh, that don't require infusions be done by video teleconferencing rather than by uh, in-person visits. So these are some of the modifications that clinical trials have made in the era of COVID-19, and this is obviously not uniform, but if you're interested in a clinical trial, you should certainly talk to your physician and ask what the density of visits are and uh, what modifications the sponsors have made for COVID-19. With regard to being in an infusion center or even hospitalized for uh, treatment on a clinical trial, most infusion centers and hospitals, certainly I'll say NYU, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Rutherford's and Dr. Strauss's center as well, have very stringent quality control in place to prevent COVID-19 infections from patient to patient. So in order to be admitted to our hospital, uh, if you're not coming through the ER, you need to have a negative COVID test within 72 hours of admission. That's whether you're coming in for scheduled chemotherapy or you're coming in for a clinical trial. And this minimizes the risk that a patient is going to come in with COVID-19 and then give it to other patients. Similarly, in our infusion center, if you're a new infusion patient, you need a negative COVID test within 72 hours of getting an infusion. 
Not only that, there are screeners in our lobby who are taking your temperature and asking you very specific questions about risk to further minimize the risk that a COVID-positive patient is going to come into our center. So I think you can feel confident that most centers are being very stringent in doing everything they can to minimize the COVID exposure risk to patients. That clinical trials have taken significant measures to also minimize the uh, risk to patients of coming in uh, too often to the clinic in the age of COVID, and that there are many accommodations. That said, with any trial that you're considering, you need to consider the uh, risks and benefits of the trial, both in terms of visit density, but also in terms of the therapy. So let's give an example. If you have relapsed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, you can get standard chemotherapy, you can get one of the novel agents, or you can get, you know, immunotherapy or some of these novel agents in combination on a clinical trial. If you were to catch COVID, sometimes being on an immune activating agent may be, uh, may, may be more beneficial than being on a, a traditional chemotherapy, which hampers your immune response. Now, there's no blanket data that says it's better to be on an immunotherapy that activates your immune system than chemotherapy, which uh, suppresses your ability to fight infection. But there have been some small reports, for example, that show that the BTK inhibitors like ibrutinib and acalabrutinib may actually have a beneficial role in COVID. And many patients feel more confident with their immune system active rather than suppressed in the era of COVID. I think what's very important with any clinical trial is to talk to the doctor that you're considering a clinical trial with about the risks and benefits of this trial, both outside and within the, the framework of COVID, and to talk about the visit density within the framework of COVID. In terms of research contributions and how clinical trials have contributed to research, so many of the drugs that Dr. Rutherford described, including uh, tafacitumab, uh, polituzumab, the anti-CD79B antibody, uh, tafacitumab, which is an antibody against CD19, uh, the combinations of lenalidomide uh, with rituxan, all of this data, which now represents uh, new uh, therapies that we have to offer to our patients outside of a trial, are only possible because patients participated in clinical trials. And these new therapies could not come from the bench to the bedside without uh, the clinical trials to bring them forward. I look on clinical trials as an opportunity to offer my patients new and very scientifically exciting therapies that are not yet approved that offer novel ways to uh, target and kill lymphoma. With regard to quality of life, I think quality of life is ever more important, and it's certainly more important now in the age of COVID than it ever has been before. Quality of life should be a consideration in any clinical trial, and certainly a discussion uh, with regard to a clinical trial should involve a question of how quality of life is going to be affected by being on the clinical trial as opposed to being on standard therapy. And in terms of discussing quality of life with your doctor, this should be something that you discuss with your doctor very freely, but this is not something that requires an in-person visit to discuss. So. If you have a quality of life concern and you live far away or you have to travel or you're concerned about COVID, this can absolutely be something that you set up a telemedicine visit to discuss. Your doctor should be available to you both in person and these days on telemedicine. 
So um, I think I will uh, stop here as I think uh, I am just about at eight minutes. I very appreciate uh, Carolyn and Cancer Care for inviting me to talk to all of you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Diefenbach. That was really an extraordinary, excellent presentation and really wonderful information about reassuring people about uh, participating in clinical trials and how they're done and also in the context of COVID-19 and also just um, also the importance of managing quality of life. So I really thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. En Enrique, I'm sorry, Adolfo, Adolfo Enrique Diaz, Dr. Diaz is Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Mays Cancer Center, UT Health, San Antonio, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Diaz is going to be addressing the role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments in reducing your exposure to COVID-19, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and preparing for your Preparing your list of questions is really important and key questions to ask your healthcare team. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Diaz. Uh, good afternoon and uh, thank you, Caroline, for the uh, opportunity. Uh, thank you also to uh, Cancer Care for being a wonderful uh, tool for uh, patients. Um, and so, uh, I'm uh, going to start by addressing the uh, role of uh, telehealth and uh, telemedicine appointments in reducing the exposure to COVID-19. So um, addressing oncologic needs during this pandemic, it's been definitely a great challenge. And uh, telemedicine and telehealth can uh, play a vital role in ensuring uh, not just primary healthcare, but oncologic needs in developed and developing countries during this crisis. Um, I have uh, highlighted a number of uh, benefits, uh, and uh, I would start with um, these points. Uh, you know, uh, health consultation through telemedicine could be more effective for such COVID-19 patients, as uh, this will reduce spread of the infection. Uh, as you all know, not all COVID-19 positive patients need to be hospitalized. Some of them. Uh, uh, are basically quarantined, um, and so telemedicine, base, uh, telemedicine visits uh, can be conducted uh, through uh, that route. Um, that's one. Um, the next uh, point, uh, and, and this is, or it was particularly uh, important at the very beginning of, of the uh, pandemic, um, telemedicine uh, can reduce the use of PPEs making uh, this available for healthcare uh, professionals who are working with severely infected COVID-19 patients in hospitals. Uh, at this point, I think uh, uh, we have enough PPEs here in uh, America, uh, but some other uh, uh, countries in development have more challenges. So that's still applicable. Um, uh, next point, you know, doctors get sick and doctors get uh, quarantined. So uh, home quarantine doctors can utilize their time effectively by providing healthcare consultation to patients through uh, telemedicine. Um, lastly, uh, telemedicine services uh, can minimize the geographic imbalance of doctors' workload. Uh, you know, 
severity of the COVID-19 infection is not equal in all countries of the world. And even it's not spread equally in all regions of U.S. or uh, a, a particular country. So telemedicine can help uh, optimize uh, the uh, oncologist uh, workload as any doctor can provide uh, not just primary health, but oncology consultation beyond geographic boundaries. So in summary, I think a, um, the benefits of using telehealth technology in epidemics include keeping healthy people away from probably infected uh, centers, such as hospitals or clinics, by um, remotely screening and also increasing safe access uh, to care for high-risk and elderly people in need of uh, oncologic care. Now, uh, as far as uh, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, uh, telemedicine appointments, uh, I have also highlighted a number of items here. Um, I'm going to start by saying that, uh, you know, patients uh, must choose a private place. That's number one. Uh, finding kind of like a, a moment of privacy can uh, sometimes be difficult, uh, especially if the patient uh, lives with other people. So before the appointment, uh, uh, basically we recommend to uh, choose a quiet room for, for the virtual appointment and ask uh, family members or roommates to respect uh, the patient's privacy. Uh, that way the patient uh, will not worry about interruptions. Um, uh, second, uh, we have to consider technical aspects. Uh, this has been crucial uh, through this pandemic, you know, uh, whether the patient is using uh, a smartphone or a computer or a tablet, it is recommended to learn how to use telemedicine, the telemedicine company app or, or a, um, a video chat software beforehand. Some um, telemedicine companies may use well-known video services um, such as um, FaceTime or WhatsApp, uh, Skype, um, uh, Epic as far as uh, medical software that integrates with uh, third parties such as uh, Zoom. Um, so that's that's important. Another option, you know, the patient just might decide to simply speak to the uh, oncologist over the phone. Um, so basically, check with uh, uh, your telemedicine company ahead of time to learn the ins and outs. Um, also, um, you, you've got to prepare your medical history. So when booking the appointment, uh, basically you're you're gonna be asked to fill in a complete medical history and answer questions related to symptoms. So uh, be sure to gather relevant documents regarding medical history ahead of time. Um, so, for example, if your oncologist offers an online health portal, it's recommended for the patient to have the information pulled up and ready to go for the visit. Um, also, get the documents ready. You know, like any doctor's appointment, uh, the patient should be ready with several several pieces of information basic pieces, you know, list of prescriptions, over-the-counter medications, supplements, uh, pharmacy phone number, uh, address, uh, uh, primary care physician, uh, name and contact information. Um, also, uh, we recommend for, 
for patients to write down the treatment plan. You know, the, the treatment plan can be simple. You know, some, sometimes patients uh, are seen as they come for surveillance. Uh, and so that's basically observation. And as I said, it's simple. But in some cases, the patients may need to have uh, treatment or procedures or uh, to make uh, appointments to see another doctor or uh, specialist uh, in person. So if possible, take notes on the treatment plan and what the next steps are during the appointment. Uh, lastly, um, we recommend to discuss uh, follow-up care. In some cases, one appointment eats uh, well, it, it's all what the patient uh, needs uh, for diagnosis and, um, and follow-up, uh, but then if a more complex treatment is needed, then uh, the recommendation uh, uh, is uh, to follow-up uh, through another uh, telemedicine appointment or in person. You may also need a uh, uh, prescription, so discussing the next step is, is really, really helpful. helpful. Um, lastly, um, key questions. Um, so uh, I also uh, kind of like a prepared a, a, a list of questions. Uh, I'm gonna uh, go really quick here. So uh, basically, uh, uh, what is DLBCL and what is diffuse large B cell lymphoma? Uh, Dr. Strauss uh, made a, a really great comment saying that this is not a sing, uh, single entity. Uh, every uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma is different. So that's that's a basic question. You know, what kind of diffuse large B cell lymphoma I have? Um, will I need a medical tests? Um, what can I do to get better? Or a, uh, uh, what treatment offers the best efficacy? As uh, discussed before a, uh, about, uh, Dr. by Dr. Rutherford and, and Diefenbach, there are different treatment options. So um, there's, a, there's a broad uh, menu to pick from. Uh, what to do if symptoms continue? Um, how can the patient access information and treatment plan? Uh, from the appointment, uh, and then uh, what to do if the patient has uh, follow-up questions. Uh, and uh, with that, I will conclude. I think we a little bit over uh, eight minutes here. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Diaz. That was really outstanding and wonderful presentation and covering a lot of very important areas that I think people will be asking questions about um, particularly about the details about telehealth. I know that's often people get struggle with that, so it's very helpful. Um, thank you so much. Um, and I am just going to say a few words about cancer care services um, before, um, and then I'm gonna, we're going to ask you a few more questions, and then we're going to have um, your Q&A. So I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm a director of education and training with Cancer Care. I'm an oncology social worker. And I'm going to talk a little bit about our, our Cancer Care's free programs and services. Um, so we, um, Cancer Care has been around for about 76 years now, and we, we're a national nonprofit organization, and we provide a host of free services. Many people contact us by calling our helpline, 800-813-4673, or visiting our website at www.cancercare.org. What do those services entail? 
So if you call us or visit our website, you can access um, speaking to one of our oncology social workers and just speaking to them for support, for questions you may have, um, and also to join one of our online support groups. We do offer online support groups and on a variety of, for different people, for caregivers, for young adults, older adults, for different specific types of cancers, um, for different types of lymphoma, um, for different types of solid tumors as well. So really a host of online support groups. And those you can see on our website, or if you call our 800 number, our staff would go over the different online groups that we offer. We also have instituted a case management program. Now we do offer uh, practical and financial assistance. We do have a copay foundation. The case management uh, program will now offer even more specific services. So no matter what your question or concern will be, if we don't have that service to provide for you, we will connect you to an organization that does, and we will stay with you until that problem is resolved. So we're not going to just give you a name and number of a place to call. We will actually be with you all the way and be sure that you get that issue resolved. And we do know that many of you have there's so many issues that many of you are struggling with right now with the pandemic, with lymphoma, so many issues. And um, it was so I have to say it does take a village, and there are many organizations in addition to Cancer Care that we would link you to depending upon your questions or concerns and be sure that you get those needs met. And we also offer lots of these education workshops, um, and they're both available by simultaneous telephone or as a webcast, and we also, they're all recorded, and so some of you have asked during the, Q, in the question, a few people asked, so my, they couldn't, they wanted to be sure to listen to it again, so you can listen to it again. Usually the podcast is up within a day or two of the programs. You'll be able to listen to it either on the telephone or on the website, so that's just something that you should be aware of. And we do have also offer publications. So with that being said, um, we're now going to actually ask you just a few questions before we move on to the, um, to the Q&A. So I'm going to start with the first, and there's just a few, again, they're brief questions. And for those of you live streaming the program, you can address, answer the questions, and they're yes, no questions. So the first question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand the current standard of care for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It's either yes or no. And the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand treatment options for resistant disease in the context of COVID-19. And again, it's yes or no. And then just two more questions. As a result of this workshop, I better understand the emerging treatment approaches, yes or no. And this will be the last question. As a result of this workshop, I am better prepared with tips to manage treatment side effects. Yes or no?
Okay, I want to thank you all for participating in these uh, in this, these questions. It really helps us in planning future programs as well to get a sense of what you've learned, what you need to learn. It's really helpful to us, so thank you for participating in this. And now we're going to have time for questions. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And uh, Norma, um, if you could do that, thank you. Thank, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star 1. So um, I have a question um, from one of our uh, participants are Dr. Strauss. Do you think it's safe to travel to a large cancer center for treatment, or should I stick with local doctors who are not specialists? Dr. Strauss, could you address that question in a general way? Yeah, that's that's a hard question. I mean, there are no stand, national standards for, you know, how to operate in this COVID environment. Uh, I think... You know, I, I, a lot of uh, a lot of initial visits can be done remotely. I mean, we, I've really learned that even though we can't examine patients, and it's definitely best to see people face to face. I'm amazed at the amount of things we can do remotely, including new visits. I mean, I think travel, you know, has to be restricted with quarantining and so so on. Um, I think that to get a virtual televisit consultation uh, before starting treatment locally is something that uh, patients have done who live some distance away from a cancer center. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. And a question for Dr. Rutherford. Um, what happens if multiple types of chemotherapy drugs are not effective against my um, my cancer, um, is CAR-T therapy limited to certain groups of people? Um, that's a great question. So I wanted to just, I mean, there's a lot that I can um, answer within that question. So um, first of all, I just want to um, state that w one of the exciting parts of the newer therapies that I mentioned are that many of them aren't chemotherapy. So it tends to be, in general, if someone has received, like, say, two or three different lines of, of traditional chemotherapy, that it, more of that type, even if they're different drugs, chemotherapy in general, um, which is not, not specific um, to cancer cells but kills dividing cells in general, um, would not be the number one approach. So you heard from me that even if you have been getting some traditional type of chemotherapy, that there are a lot of other options that are not chemotherapy. Now, from the CAR-T question, I think that, you know, this is really evolving and we are learning more about these this type of therapy. Um, so, you know, I do think that um, it's not for everyone. Um, it is promising. There are patients who have done really well with it. Um, it does have a couple of toxicities that are notable. Um, one is called cytokine release syndrome, which can, um, can kind of appear like someone has an infection, but it's actually an inflammatory process the patient undergoes. Um, in some ways, it may be a sign that the treatment's starting to have an effect, um, but that can make people quite sick. 
Um, it is often managed in, in our intensive care unit. And the second toxicity is something called neurotoxicity, where people can have issues with their cognitive um, functioning, um, their brain functioning, usually reversible. Most of the time it is reversible. Um, but we have to be really cautious that, you know, these are not benign therapies. So people that may have other medical problems, um, and we don't like to use age in general because age is really just a number and that there's a, you know, people could be, um, you know, for example, in their 80s, but be um, functionally much younger, for example. Um, so, but nonetheless, not everyone is a candidate for CAR T-cell. It is a good therapy, um, but there are those other options that can either be given, for example, before CAR T. So I've had some patients that have gotten, like, um, the polituzumab regimen I mentioned and then gone on to CAR T-cell therapy. Um, so it, th these aren't necessarily, like, there isn't one linear order for everyone. It really kind of depends on the person and maybe what side effects they have from other therapies um, that we have to watch closely for in terms of toxicities. Um, but um, if, if you are someone who hasn't responded to some of the traditional chemotherapies, if you have some other medical problems and may not be a candidate for CAR T-cell, you still have a number of oral um, therapy options as well as some of the other targeted, the tafacindamab, polituzumab um, options as well. So, um, again, there, we have much more to offer patients now um, than we did even two years ago. And as Dr. Diefenbach pointed out, we love um, when possible for patients to participate in clinical trials because sometimes they can get um, promising drugs that are even better than what we have available commercially um, through that uh, mechanism. Excellent. Thank you. And actually, a question for Dr. Diefenbach. So kind of, um, Dr. Diefenbach, um, his question is, what can I do about side effects from my chemotherapy drugs, specifically aches and, and loss of appetite? So I think that's a wonderful question because there are really a lot of uh, chemotherapy-related side effects, and it's really important to manage those side effects so that uh, you can basically uh, get your chemotherapy on schedule, especially if this is curative intent chemotherapy because the data shows us that staying on schedule is really important, but quality of life is also important. So to break down the achiness, I think your doctor will want to really understand where the achiness is coming from because the achiness can sometimes fr come from the chemotherapy and sometimes it can come from the bone strengthening medicine that we give so that your counts don't go too low during chemotherapy, which is called Nulasto or Nupigen. And the treatment for both of those is quite different. So if your chemotherapy is causing achiness, which is, is um, with standard chemotherapy, fairly unusual, um, with the novel chemotherapies um, can be a little more common, then uh, Tylenol or other anti-inflammatory agents, depending on whether your counts are low or not, will be reasonable. If you're having uh, bony pain from the growth factor that you're giving to keep your counts up, there are actually other treatments that might be able to help, such as uh, histamine blockers, such as, uh, such as Claritin, uh, which can help as well as Tylenol. So I think it's going to be very important for your doctor to have a detailed discussion with you, either in person or um, or through telehealth, to get a deeper understanding of where the achiness is coming from. Again, the decreased appetite is a very common complaint and needs to be unpacked uh, in much more detail. So is this um, is this due to nausea or just due to lack of appetite? And um, is it throughout the chemotherapy cycle, or is it uh, just a few days after chemotherapy? And how you answer that question is really going to determine how the doctor deals with this. If this is 
um, nausea that's related to the first few days after chemotherapy, some steroids and some anti-nausea medicines such as Zofran or a Prepotent or um, Aloxy may help with the nausea and the appetite significantly. But if you're not eating throughout the cycle of chemotherapy, then other therapies such as medical marijuana or other, qual- other classes of antiemetics may help uh, may help uh, improve appetite uh, during chemotherapy. So with these and other side effects, it's going to be really important that your doctor takes a detailed, uh, a detailed look at where these side effects are coming from because then as a team you'll be able to address them and make the chemotherapy easier to tolerate. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Excellent. And question for Dr. Diaz. If I'm in remission, how important is it to go to in-person appointments? That's a, that's a great question, Caroline. Hey, um, so uh, I always tell patients when I see them face-to-face and when I see them through a uh, telemedicine, either uh, through video or telephone, that each single appointment is an exercise of um, uh, integrating pieces of information. And I always... Uh, uh, point out four pieces of information that we use to make a column uh, of what to do next. You know, those those pieces are always uh, uh, symptoms that we get from the physical examination, that we get from the uh, patient, I'm sorry. Um, uh, two, uh, the, the physical examination by itself. Three, uh, blood work or uh, uh, laboratories that uh, we get at the time of the appointment. And then for um, imaging that we request every now and then, uh, depending on uh, the phase of, of, of the treatment of lymphoma. Um, in my practice, uh, and you know, during this year, what I've been doing is uh, uh, I, I tend to reserve the telemedicine visits uh, for the time when a physical examination can be. Uh, uh, skipped if I happen to have CT scans, right? Um, but uh, definitely physical examination is it's a great tool and, and always, uh, you know, uh, uh, having the uh, eye-to-eye contact and then uh, lay hands on a patient, uh, it's, uh, it's important. So, so in summary, yes, uh, it's important uh, to... Uh, Follow up um, face to face is uh, it's, uh, the preference when um, there are no CT scans that uh, we can assess. Um, and through telemedicine, you can always get symptoms. You can uh, always get labs in advance, uh, and you can always discuss with patients. You know the next best step, uh, depending on those pieces of information that we uh, evaluate on on each visit. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, the last question for Dr. Rutherford. Um, uh, can you share any clinical evidence of CAR T-cell, uh, CAR-T-cell efficacy in patients in their 80s? Um, so that's a great question. And um, like I, or I don't remember if I said this, but I was thinking it that we could do a whole session on CAR-T therapy itself. There's so many, so many different topics to touch on. So That's a good point. Excellent. I, I, I think, yeah. So I think in general, it's thought that probably more patients who are older 
um, are maybe can are candidates for CAR T compared to stem cell transplants. So where we may say someone it, uh, that the the side effects related to stem cell transplant may be um, potentially too hard on a certain person that we may consider them for CAR T cell. Now there are differences of opinion in that, and we're learning more and more. You know, in general, we use clinical trials, as has been said other um, other points during this talk, to guide our our therapeutic um, decision making for patients. And um, often, older patients are not included on um, clinical trials, so our CAR T trials do not have as many older patients on them as they do younger patients. Um, however, there's been a lot of data published on real world experience of patients um, with older, you know, older patients with the LBCL on CAR T cells. So I, I know there was a, some abstracts on it on the ASCO meeting. Um, we have our ASH American Society Hematology meeting coming up um, in just a couple weeks. So I'm expecting that we're going to have more information on that. So that's something to look out for in the press uh, and to ask your doctors about probably even um, better um, so they can really tailor it to your situation. I think in general it is, is thought that um, older people likely are to have more side effects related to CAR-T than someone who is younger. But that, again, age, as I said earlier, is really just the number, not to use a cliche, but that's just really the best way to say it, um, and that people have different functional statuses at different ages, so that's really not the best way to say it. But, um, but nonetheless, um, with regard to efficacy, I think that's a tough question to answer because we just don't have a lot of patients in that situation. Um, I think, you know, I think if a patient has a good functional status, and is responding well to therapy, and is that you know it can be um, considered for um, CAR T if their if their physician thinks that that's an appropriate therapy. I think it's a reasonable approach. Um, I don't think we have any reason to think that they would do less well than someone say ten years younger than them um, with comparable um, issues otherwise. Um, but again, we do. This is something that you need to talk closely with your physician with, and um, and also. Um, know that there are a lot of other therapies that, um, you know, we actually didn't talk on the, about this specifically. There's another category of drugs called bispecific antibodies, um, which, is, you know, which may be easier on people than CAR T-cell or at least easier to administer. Um, so the point is you have options. I just want to reiterate that we're learning more and more about these different therapies and about the best order for them and who are the best candidates. Um, but, we're, you know, I think we're going to have even more and more to talk about. If we do this talk a year from now or two years from now, you'll probably have <laughs> – we'll, we'll have a hard time fitting it in in an hour because we're just getting more and more um, therapies out there for you all. That's a wonderful note to, to end on. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing, uh, amazing, uh, actually, I have to say, program today. Um, our speakers have been phenomenal, and our participants have been phenomenal in asking such great questions. And indeed, uh, it is true that we should be doing a separate program on CAR-T uh, therapy. That's absolutely true. And we also are planning to do a post-ASH program so that uh, very shortly you'll be hearing of those updates that Dr. Um, Rutherford has alluded to. There will be more research coming out and more information for all of you to have. Now, I know there are many more questions in queue, and I also know that... Um, we had said this would be an hour program, so that in fairness to everybody on the call, um, I do want to thank you all. But I do want to remind all of you that um, for those of you who asked a question or have a question you'd like to ask or thought of a question as we're ending, please go back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they know you the best, 
And I'm hoping that as a result of this program that you feel more confident in asking your questions, as you can see our physicians on this call are very eager to answer your questions, and also um, that you have some more information to bring to your healthcare team in terms of your asking the questions. Um, so we hope that will, that will happen as well. Um, so see this program in terms of the Q&A as a kind of role model for you of asking questions. Take it back to your treating healthcare team. That's a very important uh, step to take here so that the information is tailored to your specific situation. Now, I do want to remind all of you also that there are many needs that you all have that go, of course, far beyond the scope of this one-hour program. And so we do this program in the context of Cancer Care's other services, and I do encourage you to take advantage of those services, to call us or visit our website. And at the end of today's program, you will be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation. And in that evaluation will be all the resources we mentioned during the program and even some others that we think would be useful to you as well during the program uh, for your needs. And, um, of course... And you'll be getting, again, the phone numbers for Cancer Care and our website. Also, this is a time, of course, when uh, because of social isolation and COVID, um, that people are feeling a little bit more alone than ordinarily. And it's normal. It's, you may be feeling alone a lot sometimes. And that's a normal feeling to have, first of all, absolutely normal to have. And I think that many uh, uh people who feel that way, you want to be sure that you can reach out to your healthcare team. You want to be sure that you can take advantage of uh, all of the online and support services that Cancer Care offers. We want to be sure that you feel connected in some way. And there are a lot of organizations out there that are available to you during business hours, and there are some that are available to you uh, 24 hours a day. And they're also your healthcare team. You may want to clarify with them when, if you have a question, when you can call them, and particularly nights and weekends and holidays, because those seem to be often a time when people have questions. So with that being said, I want to thank you all for your participation on today's program. Um, you are a remarkable, resilient group of people who've chosen to spend this time with us, um, and we hope you've learned things that you can use in your own care and the care of those you love, and uh, we welcome you to future programs as well. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>